Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 134 of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger, along with uh, Frank Saravalli. Coming up uh, later today in the pod, uh, Dave Randorf will uh, join us. We'll break down Tampa and the uh, Rangers were at uh, Tampa for the first time in a, in a tough situation uh, this year. Uh, Frank, uh, speaking of tough situations, uh, you were in uh, Denver, Colorado last night, uh, the Edmonton Oilers, and just not a carbon copy of game one, but a carbon copy of the fact that Edmonton allowed Colorado way too many scoring chances off the rush. And Edmonton's top guys for the second straight game were very quiet in their biggest strength of the game, which is scoring chances off the rush. 26 to eight. That's it. And that's the stat. It's not the 18 goals scored so far in the first two games. It's not some of the highlight real plays that we've seen. It's, it's really 26 to eight. That's the number of scoring chances generated off the rush by the Colorado avalanche against the Oilers. The Oilers, Jason are getting beat at their own game. That's been where their bread has been buttered all season long. They're a dangerous team. And They've really seemed to have nothing going against the abs and, and that first minute of game two, that to me is, is the highlight of, of the series so far is Kale McCarr going stride for stride with Connor McDavid, you know, a perfect pivot. One of the few players in the world that can, that can keep pace with McDavid. His gap was excellent. Well-timed per, uh, poke check. And all of a sudden, you know, a classic or what looked to be as he was winding through the neutral zone, a classic Connor McDavid rush where you just were on the edge of your seat thinking you're going to see something special. It turned into a nothing play. Didn't even get a shot on goal. Connor McDavid went um, the entire game, game two. And, and this is not an indictment of McDavid or dry You know, it's not all on them, but Colorado is the deeper team, Jason. And if those two players aren't producing, each of them had four shot attempts in game two. They weren't dangerous. Didn't seem to have anything going. Who's going to step up? The Oilers just don't have the depth to do it. The the Oilers third line might've been their most dangerous line all all game long. And uh, to me, like, McDavid didn't have the same explosiveness that I've seen. And he even said it after the game, Frank, he goes, you know what? I don't want, wasn't at my best here. And that's what I thought was very interesting. He said here, which is games one and two. And uh, I fully expect, um, the Oilers, uh, specifically their top guys, because right now I think Colorado, we can depth aside. I think Colorado's top players have been more dangerous than Edmonton's top players. And in any series, you know what? Uh, that That's ultimately going to be the difference. And so, you know, Edmonton really, you know, that game, Colorado was controlling the first period. Edmonton, you know, their penalty kill keeps them in the game. You know, they think they've gained some momentum, but then three goals in two minutes and the game's over, right? Like there was there was basically a two-minute stretch. And, and after the first goal, I thought another bad shift for the orders right after a goal uh, on that first goal like you know darnell nurse you got to make that pass like that that's a pass that should be made I, I don't think anyone can debate that you're on your backhand you put it on your partner's tape that, that's not a turnover and the puck's probably out of the zone but i was intrigued by all, i thought dry settle kane hyman all of them just didn't look like they've had the same step that they had in the first two rounds and they're gonna have to find it in games three and four what was the toughest sequence for the Oilers in game two? Was it the nurse turnovers, the dash three in, in 204, which is up there. And I think we probably, we can dive into it to have the conversation of whether you mentioned it on the daily Faceoff show on Thursday, you know, it, it's time to maybe make a change in the pairs to get nurse 
uh, you know, take some ice time away at this point because he seems to be so injured. It's great that Jay Woodcroft said, you know, he's giving them absolutely everything he has and he's, he's a warrior. Everyone's in full appreciation of what Darnell nurse has battled through in these playoffs to even be playing, you know, as I reported the core muscle injury, like he, he likely needs surgery. It's legit. It's no joke. But at what point are you doing a disservice to your team with the number of minutes that he's playing and what you're asking him to do? So that was a tough sequence. Jay Woodcroft, it seems like Jared Bednar has picked up on the idea that Jay Woodcroft likes to put his fourth line out there after a goal is scored. So you go fourth line out of the shoot after it's one nothing. The abs go Kadri Rantanen and it's in their net a few seconds later again. That was a tough sequence for the Oilers. And then, you know, I, I don't view a game two at all being on Mike Smith, but Mike Smith without a, without a glove and Nathan McKinnon scores blocker side uh, to make it for nothing. I, I don't know. Um, it's, uh, geez, there's a lot to pick through with the Oilers in game two. Yeah, Smith to me is is a non-issue for the game. Like it's three nothing in that game, and the, the shots were significantly favoring Colorado. You you look at could have been eight nothing. Oh, that easily, first right? period, he it, I don't like I, he can't play any better than that first period. Yeah, like you look at the the slot the shots in the slot five on five in this game were seventeen to five Colorado scoring chances off the cycle five two Colorado scoring chances off the rush fourteen to three. Like it wasn't. It wasn't really close. So yeah, the goalie's not the issue. Um, Edmonton, they're I, you know I go back to it collectively as a group. Their top guys need to be better. Um, I, I don't know. May, maybe it was altitude. I think that's an excuse. So I, I, I don't think that that's a realistic one. Um, you know, nurse's injury for sure, but the injury shouldn't for, that pass shouldn't happen uh, because the injury had nothing to do on the second goal. He's on the ice, but that really wasn't him, right? Um, you know, the pucks in the corner. Winger loses a battle, goes to the point, and through just over a screen. It's a nice shot actually by. Uh, Josh Manson, who, who rebounded from a, a tougher game one. But Edmonton just right now through two games, Frank, um, no excuses for that team. The other Colorado's best players were better. And Edmonton's going to, you know, and that goes from Ford's defense, uh, even goaltending, that uh, Edmonton collectively as a team is going to have to find their game. And, and I'm curious, Frank, with the Kyler Yamamoto injury, uh, upper body, uh, if he can't go, I wonder if the order's, because, you know, a lot of people are clamoring for, for Dylan Holloway. And I'm like, well, if Dylan Holloway comes in, he's not on the penalty kill. He's not going to be on the power play. Um, you know, Josh Archibald was playing seven minutes, and that was including penalty kill minutes. Putting him in there, you're not going to get him any ice time. But for Kyler Yamamoto, that's a top nine four. That's a different conversation. You mm-hmm. could put Dylan Holloway in now if you wanted. Not saying he's the answer. Let me abundantly clearly say that. But at least there's a chance for a player who's not used to playing six or seven minutes that maybe if he plays 10 because he's getting five on five shifts in your top nine, you know, maybe he could help your team. It's a boost. Possibly. I wonder, you know, if they look at that, because if it's not him, then then you're, uh, you know, you're bringing in either Broussard or, or Shore or Broussard or Shore for now. Yeah, that's it. So you're not. I think you, know, you go 11 and seven and you put Broberg in. That's what I would do. You could do that too. That was my next point. Yeah. Like they might go with Philip Broberg. They've been skating him pretty hard after practice, which is usually a sign they want to keep. Like the fact that Holloway hasn't been out there for those extra skates kind of leads me to believe that, you know, you're not keeping him in tip top shape. Yeah. Just, you need to skate. You can't not skate against this Colorado avalanche team. Well, Holloway can skate. And, 
well, he can, but Broberg can skate yeah, and they need yeah. help getting out of their own end. They need help breaking up a sustained attack. And I'm not saying Broberg's the answer or can do that, but they need help breaking up that attack. I mean, Brett Kulak was talking about it after game two, saying it didn't happen to him personally in game two, but there was a stretch where the Avs had such a sustained attack going, Jason, that they were able to change their forwards on the fly and not miss a beat I saw it. in the offensive zone. Like that is, that's utter domination. Yeah. No, they, Hey, they were the better team. You can, you know, sound like a broken record here, but uh, Edmonton's going to have to recover quickly. Uh, I will say this, that, um, and, and you talked about it, Frank, uh, you know, being in both buildings, the, uh, um, the intensity of the crowd is not the same. Uh, it was louder last night, though. It was much louder last night in Colorado than it was in game one. So, um, but they've Edmonton, had a lot to cheer for. Oh, yeah. Edmonton will be a madhouse. You've been in that barn. I um, mean, oh, yeah. It's just to me, this is this is going to be reminiscent of game three of 2006, where the fans aren't stupid. The fans in Edmonton know what the situation is. Um, in the Stanley Cup final of 06, they came home. Uh, they were trailing uh, two nothing to uh to Colorado and Frank, they got shut out five, nothing in game two of, of that Stanley cup final. And the place was an absolute madhouse. I expect it to be uh, very similar to that. Um, you know, I, I think the orders are obviously in tough. They're going to have to channel their inner New York Rangers and, and hope that you can come back from an O2 deficit. But in the conference final, Frank, it hasn't happened since 1991. And it's really only happened twice since expansion that a team has come back from an O2 deficit in the, uh, in the conference final. So it's a massive hill to be, uh, to be climbing up. Um, it probably was too, too tall of one to finish. You know, I don't expect the orders to quit, but I, I think game three, Frank will probably be the loudest. The, uh, the ability is being just, they're, they're going to try to help, especially when, you know, McDavid says, Hey, I, I don't think I had everything that, you know, I wasn't at my best here. I, I think even the orders players, well, you know how it is, Frank, like there's that that boost of energy in a game three when you're trailing to nothing and, you know, teams win and then sometimes they lose in five. Right. Or they lose game four and then the series is over. But usually we see a bump for most teams when they're trailing 2-0 at home in game three. I expect to see a bit of that to start, but I also think there's enough nervous energy now that exists. I mean, the Oilers, I mentioned that the abs are beating them at their own game. Like they feel like as much as McDavid met his match with McCarr going stride for stride, that it feels like they've met their match, like in, in a way that um, what the Oilers are feeling right now is a lot of what the Calgary flames felt in round two of the battle of Alberta, their stars. It's not, again, it's not all on them, but when they can't get anything going, they're in tough. They really are. Like they're, you're not going to beat the abs in a depth game. Like you, you mentioned no Kyler Yamamoto. Like they were without 61 point score yeah. Andre Burakovsky in game two. Like they were also a little bit shorthanded relying on new hook and, and O'Connor played more minutes and it's just, they're, they're strong. They're detailed. They're tough to play against. They're just, they skate just as well, if not better than the Oilers. And they're, I'd imagine that there's going to be a lot of nervous energy in Rogers place in game three. Oh, yeah. You could be right. Ner nervous energy doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be quiet though. Right. Like, um, right. I don't but think if, if you get an early abs lead an early yeah. goal, it will puncture that like a balloon. 
Because uh, to me, the orders have to test the goaltender. Francis, that was one of the easier shutouts. Good for him, right? Uh, he he looked very sound. Um, you know, the let, best me, let me just mention that, by the way. Like, I want to take full responsibility for the headline uh, on dailyfaceoff.com on Wednesday morning saying that the Oilers have a, quote, real opening if Darcy Kemper is out. I, I, I felt like, Jason, that might be able to swing the series for the Oilers. They, they weren't able to get to him. And, and I give credit, you know, as much as, you know, there is credit to give to Francois, it's also to the abs team in front of him that really, oh. they were clinical. They did not make very many mistakes. And that's the one thing Jared Bender mentioned. We talked about chances off the rush. And he said, we didn't make very many mistakes. We didn't have the turnovers in the neutral zone that would help fuel that fire. And that's part of why they were able to limit the, the chances against. Yeah. Well, you look at Edmonton's best chance kind of came off an odd bounce over the net right into the slot on yes, a stick and he missed the net. Now the puck was bouncing, but you saw his reaction, right? Like that's, that was probably their best scoring chance of the entire game. And it came from Jesse Pugliarvi, who otherwise is barely involved in the play. Yeah, like Yeah, the orders, it's, that's a, it's, a, it's a good comparison, Frank, when you look at, um, you know, Calgary. Although Calgary did, you know, find a way to get some, uh, um, to get some chances, right? So, uh, um, well, it's because the Oilers give up a lot of chances. Yeah, that's fair too. Um, I, I think now look at St. Louis. They generate lots of chances against the, uh, the the Avalanche. You just have to find ways to do it. And so that's, you know, that's Jay Woodcroft coaches. They'll look at video, they'll break it down. And then, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll come better. But I, I think the order is just flat out. Like I didn't see, you know, a lot of jump that, that I saw in the first two rounds in their game. Like it just wasn't there. And I don't have an ex like, Obviously, I got to give Colorado some credit, but, you know, e- even wheeling through the neutral zone untouched, Edmonton just didn't seem to have the same speed. They don't. And now the big question is, so Jay Woodcroft, was it an unforced error to break up McDavid and Dreisaitl that quickly? And You know, it's the first time since round one that they did. And then they didn't have a lot going. So, and, and crunch time, third period down by a big margin, you have to put them back together, which he did for most of the third, it, you know, all hands on deck. Now, my guess is Jay, that they go back to putting 97 and 29 together just because well, they're it was home, so right? dominant for so long and they're at home. Yeah. What do you, what do you make of the, as Jay Woodcroft calls it, moving the pieces around the chessboard? Yeah. I, I thought, that um, I would have, um, I would have stuck with it. Uh, I actually thought the line they ran in practice, going back to Kane, McDavid, and Drysaw, I thought that would have been the move because they were so dominant. And you're like, hey, uh, Hyman is and Nugent Hopkins are very responsible, right? Uh, as the, as the second line, and I would have said, hey, let's go power on power and, and see what happens here. And they might do that for, for game three. But I was a little surprised, to be honest, that they split up 97 and, and 29 just because they'd been so dominant. And even though they lost game one, those two still had five points, right? Now, it was That's, kind of a, a quieter five points, but still, it's five points. And I, I was a little surprised by it. But ultimately, I'm not sure the way they were playing, if it would have mattered, if they would have stayed together or not. You're right. Um, I just I wonder if because they were so dominant that it was an unforced error in the sense that it's not like Jared Bednar is trying to run away from like, he's like, yeah, we'll do whatever you need. 
we'll put our top guys against your top guys and, and we'll, you know, we'll go head to head. He does not care. He's not chasing a, you know, a matchup trying to put specific guy. He goes, we'll we'll play whoever you want to go. McDavid McKinnon straight up. Sure. 14 plus minutes at even strength in game one. We'll, we'll do that. Like it, I feel like in some ways the matchup has really been skewed in that there's so much natural attention on McDavid McKinnon that the real matchup is no, it's McDavid and McCarr. McCarr. Yes. It's well, Taves yeah. and McCarr. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that pair for sure. And so the, that's where the apps have said, crushed them. Yeah. No, no. Well, the shots in game one, they were 12, three again, head to head. So I look at, um, I look at what's going to happen in game three, Frank. And that's where, you know, as you go deeper in the playoffs, I find coaches do, do like certain matchups a little bit more, right? Um, Woodcroft wanted the, the McDavid line versus Goudreau matchup and he got it all through the first four games. And by game five, right, we were in Calgary. That's when they switched it. And I'd been talking since game three. I thought Calgary should do it. So I wonder what will happen in game three in Edmonton. Jay Woodcroft, last change. You know, will he now maybe he keeps McDavid and Drysaddle separate at home ice because now he looks and says, hey, one of those two is always going to be on the ice uh, without Kale McCarr. Right. I can guarantee that more now. So um, and, and in situations like offensive zone starts and situations where you can control that change more. And so I wonder if we see that or does he just say, no, no, no. On home ice, I'm putting my two big dogs together because you, you kind of ride what got us here. And I know it started because of injuries. Right. Because they didn't start the playoffs that way. But due to injuries, they put them together and they were lethal and uh, and they won six out of seven games. Well, six out of eight games with them because they lost game one. So uh, I could see them going back to that. And I I also your your point about seven defensemen makes a lot of sense. Edmonton's done it and they've had success, uh, especially on home ice with uh, with running 11 and seven. And then you you could uh, you could have dry subtle on a line, Frank, with McDavid. But a lot of times then you double shift McDavid and you put him with the Hyman line. Yeah. Or you, if you, since you have last change, you you try and do everything you can to squeeze every drop out, even if it means double shifting those guys when the abs throw their third line over the boards, you know, face off, you're, you're going to toss out your big guns. Yeah. I, I think that's their only opportunity to really try and generate something different. Yeah. It'll be uh, fun to watch. And, and now Dave, we're going to get into uh, Dave Randorf because uh, in the East, the uh, Tampa Bay lightning, uh, the New York Rangers, man, I, I, there was a lot of people before the series said, Hey, you know what? Uh, you know, New York's never faced somebody like Vasilevsky or Tampa Bay. And I was like, yeah, but keep in mind that uh, the Tampa Bay lightning haven't faced a goalie like Igor Shesterkin in this playoff so far. And uh, in game one, they got a dose of it. Now I thought that game one was kind of expected, Frank. I, I thought Tampa Bay, you look at the history of teams coming off a lengthy break against team on game one, usually favors that team that just won game seven and that repeated itself. So I expect Tampa Bay to be much, much better tonight, but uh, they're uh, New York's got their attention. So that'll be fun. Our next guest has been on your television for the last 25 years, covering some of the biggest events in sports from the gray cup to the Olympics to hockey night in Canada. He's had his formative years in Vancouver, spent a lot of his time working in the Toronto area nationally throughout Canada, but for the last couple of years has been in Tampa Bay with Valley sports calling the Tampa Bay lightning uh, and has certainly seen a lot of success since he arrived in Tampa. Dave Randorf, Welcome to the DFO Rundown. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Frank. Thanks very much. That's a nice intro. I appreciate it. And it's great to be on with you guys on this excellent new podcast. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. And uh, 
Interesting start to this Eastern Conference final, Dave. You know, a shot across the bow for the two-time defending Stanley Cup champs. A big win for the Rangers. Six goals they put on the board in game one on Wednesday night against Andre Vasilevsky, who was just utterly dominant in round two. Uh, more goals scored by the Rangers in game one than the Panthers had gotten past them in the entirety of round two. What's the biggest takeaway for you? Like, how much do you think Rust factored into that for the lightning who went nine days between games. Well, uh, yeah, you're right. Six goals against that was double what the Florida Panthers got in their, their four game series against. And, you know, John Cooper said it yesterday and I tend to agree. It was, it was a bit of an aberration. He says, you know, we're not going to allow just three goals in an entire series and we're not often going to give up six goals in one single game. Um, it was not necessarily a statement of how Vasilevsky played. It was a statement of a, how the lightning defended, which was not well and B, how hot the Rangers are offensively. Six goals against, in, or six goals for, in game number one, they've scored 17 goals in their last three games. So, so they're rolling, particularly on the power play. Uh, but what stuck out and what this was a takeaway was this really was uh, an odd um, game for the Lightning. I wasn't expecting this. With the rest and the rust, that was a big question, that eight or nine day layoff between the four-game sweep and game one of this Eastern Conference Final. To a man, the players weren't using that as an excuse. And really, if you look at the first period of that game in which it was tied 1-1, uh, I and they gave up an early goal very early, like a minute and change into it, I thought the Lightning could have been up to maybe 3-1 after the first period. So they didn't look tired. They looked a little bit overwhelmed when the puck dropped in the second period. I thought the Rangers came out and stopped uh, playing tentatively. I thought they, uh, they forced the Lightning... Uh, into uncomfortable situations in their own end, uh, which again has been their strength since really the end of uh, round one. They've really locked things down offensively. They have not allowed uh, odd man rushes, and they were doing all of that and more against the Rangers in, in game number one uh, the other night at Madison Square Garden. A lot of two-on-ones, a lot of east-west of is what the coaches were saying. They had him running around, and whether or not it was Vasilevsky or or Shesterkin or any great goalie between the pipes that night for the Lightning, they would have had trouble. So I fully expect to see that tightened up. That has been the model of this team. Uh, they are 17-0 in the last two-plus playoff seasons after a loss. And, you know, that, that stat really kind of speaks for itself. Yeah, it certainly does. And you mentioned the East-West play. That's really what stood out to me from game one is just what the Rangers were able to get through the Lightning defense to make Vasilevsky move, it was so uncharacteristic of Tampa to allow that much in their, their own end. And that's, you know, Vasilevsky was unreal in round two, but they really clamped down against Florida to, to stop them from getting through and, and, and making Vasilevsky play East West. How do they tighten that up for game two? Just uh, first of all, they have to possess the puck and manage the puck better themselves and, and, and keep it away from the Rangers because they are feeling it offensively. And they had some guys with wide open looks and it's no secret to, you know, at this time of year, you're often hearing coaches say, we got to get in the goalie's face. We got to take away his eyes. We got to make a move laterally. Vasilevsky, I don't think, you know, of all the things that he does well, post to post, side to side, he is outstanding. But they really, you know, maxed him out the other night with those east-west passes through the seam, which just haven't been available the last five or six games. So I think they just need to get back to their structure. Um, I do wonder whether or not 
They've been going with 11 forwards and seven defensemen the last several days. Sorry, guys. There's a, there is a, a podcast full podcast. Okay, I muted my phone. My apologies. Um, they have been able to uh, withstand the, the, the lines mishmash that you get from that situation. But I'm wondering if maybe a little bit of uh, that's starting to catch up with them. They have played 11 and seven many, many times over the last couple of years. So this is nothing new to the Lightning. They're used to it. But, I, I, you know, with all the hockey they've played, there's a couple of guys. There seems to be some pop and some structure missing from the forwards contribution up there. And I'm wondering if that is starting to catch up with them. But there is no Braden Point right now. He's not coming back anytime soon. And Brandon Hagel appears as though he is not 100%. Uh, he didn't skate yesterday. We'll see if he goes tonight. We certainly hope he does. If not, you're going to have to dip into the, uh, the thin depth that they have at the forward position right now with Riley Nash potentially coming in. And maybe a rookie in the name of uh, Cole Kepke. And David, you, you know, I get to Br- Braden point and like anything, teams can overcome an injury for the short term. The longer it goes at times, it starts to expose itself, but uh, we're 12 games in Kucherov, Sorelli, uh, as well as uh Kalorn, you know, three of their top six guys, they don't have a goal five on five, right? Like, yeah. Tampa's top six only has a total of six goals, five on five in the playoffs. Their bottom guys have actually been highly productive um, when you, they're outscoring them uh, way more. Just five on five, I'm talking. Uh, is that a concern? And are you seeing it like Nikita Kucherov is usually just a crusher uh, for Tampa in the postseason. He doesn't have a goal yet, five on five in 12 games. Yeah. Uh, Nikita Kucherov has been a crusher, as you say, the last two playoff years. But he's also had Braden Point on his line. That has been their money line. Kucherov with Point and plot uh that line has not been together really for you know months a couple of months now um john cooper started mixing and matching things uh, in mid-march to try to wake this team up and and kind of shake off their mental fatigue i felt that they were going through and he ended up putting uh stamkos with kudrava they were so hot uh especially in the month of april that he has kept them together so kudrava had his chances in game one and uncharacteristically he was not able to finish them as the opportunistic Rangers were able to finish theirs, particularly uh, Philip Hedl has got eight goals, <laughs> sorry, seven goals, and he had eight all season. So, you know, there you go. But when you look at the Lightning, their top goal scorers right now are Ross Colton and Corey Perry, and now Andre Pallott, who got his fifth as well. I, I was thinking, and I have been thinking, and still do kind of think that that is a testament to the, you know, the, the depth and the, the extra layer of scoring that the Lightning are, are getting here. But you're right, uh, Jason, that you've got to get your, your your big guys going here. And in particular, Kucherov and the other guys that you mentioned, five on five. Because look at the uh, look at the other night. Very few power play opportunities in game one. I thought Wes McCauley and company called a very clean game. It certainly has changed from what we were seeing in the first round across the board with power plays all over the place. Uh, so you can't always depend upon that. No. Um, you want to get your your looks when you can with the man advantage, but if they're not there, you need to score those five on five goals. So uh, Kucherov in particular needs to uh, need, needs to cash in those chances. They definitely need him. Now, looking at the Rangers, and uh, you mentioned uh, Hedl, but you throw in Lafreniere and, and Capocacco, uh, you know, the, the kid line, if, if, if you want to call it that, all very young. Uh, no rookies in there, but they're either in their. Uh, second, third, or fourth seasons. And they've really come on this postseason. And, you know, you look at matchups. Um, how, how does John Cooper, do you find, like, are his matchups more about his defense pairs 
against the other team's top guys rather than his forward lines? Uh, or is, does he look at, at, at Sorelli and say, okay, we got to hard match him, you know, maybe against Panarin and are they going to readjust? And who do you think has to do a better job against the heat line? Well, I mean, uh, I think he does definitely that. He, he, John will tend to say that he doesn't really overly concern himself with matchups as much as the entire team structure. And that may be true because he does have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of depth in that regard when they are playing well. However, having said that, sure, he wants Sorelli, like Sorelli and Kalorn and Point, they were being asked to play kind of a shutdown role against Marner and Matthews in the first round. And they did as much, you know, those guys got some points, but they didn't get those, those killer blows that ultimately knocked uh, the lightning out. Uh, they, they did a good job, particularly as that season or sorry, as that series went on. Um, so I, I you look at the Rangers right now, you talk about Panarin, well, he and Zvanajad are on separate lines right now. And then you've got that kid line. They are three lines deep right now. Uh, the Rangers, they're getting goals from three lines up and down. Um, Kreider's on that top line uh, with Zvanajad and then Panarin's on the second one. And then that kid line that you mentioned is really starting to feel it. I think uh, Gerard Gallant is a very good coach and it's in, instilled a lot of confidence in these guys. Uh, but their offense has really taken it to the next level. And I think that they just have to, by committee, the Lightning, who, of course, don't have the last change here tonight, uh, need to just basically get back to their game. And and they were a very good team, much like the Rangers were in the regular season, a very good team, goals against per game. And they need to just get back to that and not worry so much about the, uh, uh, the matchups, as you say. Um, you know, they can't make those costly mistakes where Zach Bogosian admitted earlier that he overcommitted in the first minute there and yeah. allowed Chris Kreider, a guy who's got 60 goals now, hmm. uh, to, uh, to have a tap in on the back door off a great feed from Savannah Jet. Uh, by the way, fun fact, would it surprise you to know that Chris Kreider is one goal away from being the Rangers all time playoff goal scoring leader? I mean, yeah. that's what he has been able to do. He's it kind of snuck up on me when I was reading the game notes the other day. So. Uh, good for him, but he was wide open, and there he was. He didn't miss. So you just, as a, as a group, they just can't miss those assignments, and I don't expect they will tonight. They, they've shown the ability to snap back into their game many, many times, and that's what I expect to see tonight. Yeah, Dave, the other fun fact that I learned in Game 7 of the last round for the Rangers was Chris Kreider is also the Rangers franchise leader in goals scored in elimination games. He has 14 elimination game goals, which is kind of crazy. But I wanted to ask you um, some news the uh, on Thursday night about the Jack Adams. Um, Gerard Gallant, as you mentioned, uh, he finished third in Jack Adams voting. What was the real surprise to me was John Cooper at 10th. You've been around this league for a long time. Um, I, I, I can't help but be so impressed with what John Cooper has done to keep this team hungry. Like that's the hardest thing. And, and just thinking back to last season and, and his mantra, you know, the thing that he kept impressing upon the group was, you know, you got your one cup, but is your cup full? And, and now as you're going for a third straight Stanley cup, it's so difficult uh, to have your team engaged. And you mentioned sort of mental fatigue and swoon that they went through in March not to put you in the heads of, of voters, the GMs and, and select media panel that do it. Why is it that it feels like the coach that's armed with really good players and a good team doesn't get Jack Adams love as coach of the year? Because as we know, in the NHL, having great players doesn't mean you have success. Like it's kind of the opposite. Sometimes some of the most talented teams don't end up winning. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you hit on a lot of great points, and uh, your podcast listeners might be surprised to know that John Cooper has never, never been named Coach of the Year. And when you consider the <clears throat> the, he's been the second fastest coach to 400 wins in NHL history. Uh, they had the 62 win season a couple of, a few years ago. Uh, ties an NHL record. Uh, they've had so much success. They're in the conference final again, third consecutive year, sixth time in the last eight years. They made it to a conference final and, of course, back-to-back Stanley Cups to boot. So, you know, I think you nailed all the, the, the points you need to, to really look at here. I think he is the victim, I guess, if that's the right word, of having a very talented team. And sometimes voters, and we are all voters, uh, tend to look for that story, that team that kind of came, rose from the ashes or maybe overachieved, punched above their weight, made it in the playoffs when they weren't supposed to all this kind of stuff with a, maybe a lesser roster. Um, that's the guys who generally sometimes get the, uh, the votes. There's only three. You got to give your know, first, second, and third ballot. And sometimes a guy like Cooper uh, will, people will say, well, you know, I can coach that team too. Yeah. Uh, Victor Hedman, just get out there. Bassey, you're starting tonight. Stammer, Coos, do your thing. You know, how hard is that? That's not it at all. I think you, you nailed it when you said that when you are on top, the real coaching begins there to stay on top. And that's when they've been able to do. And I'm around this group all the time and they are hungry and they are motivated. And here's one other thing too, that uh, that I'll, a story I'll share with you just to tell you how much they respect and still listen to John Cooper. He's been here. He's the longest tenured coach in the NHL has been here for a long time. And as you all know, that gets tiring. You know, the, the, no matter what, eventually your, your voice gets tiring for a group, you know, but, Near the beginning of the season, uh, they came out for practice one morning and news of the day uh, that morning, it was released that John Cooper had signed a contract extension with the Lightning at the beginning of the season. And he comes out and he goes to the whiteboard. He's about to start practice and everybody to a man started giving stick taps. So I ask you guys who have been to a whole bunch of practices for a whole bunch of teams, how many times do you see that? Somebody in that group on the ice had to say, hey, boys, you're the news. Coop's here for another three years. What do you guys think of that? The respect that comes from that moment for those watching kind of says it all, doesn't it? It, it? That's probably not too common where you get the whole group publicly out for everybody to see them giving the respect and love and appreciation for what he brings to that group. And uh, I just thought that was a telling moment. And you know what? Uh, he would certainly probably like to have a coach of the year award at this point in time, but he's got, he can't hear you because his two Stanley Cup rings are blocking his ears. <laughs> I can only think of one other time, Dave, that I've seen that for a head coach. It was Barry Trotz when he took the hot lap and in yes. the Stanley Cup final. Uh, other than that, I, I haven't really seen players go wild for a coach. Um, the other oh, I, part I didn't say it went wild, but, but they did. They did certainly acknowledge it. And, and I thought it, that was a, a, a very telling. It says a lot. And, and look, the big thing with John Cooper that stands out for me is just no one knows his players better and what makes them tick. So much of this job, people get lost in the X's and O's or analytics. It's about finding a way to get the most out of your players. And he does that because he cares and takes the time to really get to know them, which I think sets him apart from a lot of the rest. But wanted to ask you, you know, with all due respect to Julian Brisebois and Steve Eiserman that preceded him, 
for me, Dave, the real superstar of the lightning is Al Murray and their scouting staff and the way that they've been able to find players, especially later in rounds. And one guy that has really stood out for me in these playoffs that I wanted to ask you about is Ross Colton. You know, he's in the select few that have scored a Stanley cup game winning goal but has really shown himself, especially in these playoffs, to be a, a key next-level contributor for the Lightning. What has stood out for you about his game that's allowed him to really get to this next level? Uh, first, before I get to Colton, you're right about Al Murray. I've had the privilege of knowing uh, Al for a long time when I covered a lot of Hockey Canada events for, for TSN, and, and he was in charge of that program there. And, uh, yeah, an astute guy, very interesting guy to talk to. And, and when you look at certainly the pillars of the Lightning, the you know, the Stamkoses and Hedmans and the high first round picks, there's there's so many diamonds that are off, and and like Sorelli and even Brain Point, people forget third round pick, and um, you know, and now Ross Colton, another example of, and I know fans probably look at a group like the Lightning and go, really, they got a like, really fourth round pick, Ross Colton, where did this guy come from? And uh, that is a drafting and developing. Um, example of what this team does well. When you are that good, you simply can't go out and sign the top free agents. You have to promote from within. And Ross Colton's emergence started a couple of years ago before I got here. This is my second season as the voice of the Lightning. And uh, my partner, Brian Englund, said, you know, we started to notice him last year at camp and that his skating was starting to improve. And, and there was there were signs there. So he goes down to the American League, has a very good year is brought up uh, last year, scores in his first goal, I believe his first goal in his first game, I think his second shift. And that kind of sets the tone right there. And uh, uh, his his hockey smarts, his desire and work ethic to get there, and, and he punches a little bit above his weight in terms of his size, but he has got a, a very good stride now and, and can get on top of you in a hurry in, in the forecheck, but he's also got very good hands. But what really is starting to separate him now is his shot. Uh, this is a guy now that's proven he can score from distance, you know, from 15 to 20 feet out. Now, not a lot of guys can do that. He can. He's now in the second unit power play with the Lightning in that spot where Kucherov usually is for the first uh, spot. And he had guys 22 goals this year. And I want to say two goals at Christmas. So he had a tremendous second half. And you can just see the confidence uh, grow. and. During that time, in March and into April, when the team was scuffling a little bit, he scored a lot of big goals to get them some, some wins and some results that probably, as a group, uh, wouldn't have got otherwise. Uh, just another perfect example of a guy that's uh, been homegrown by the Lightning, and they have worked with him, and all facets of his game are really starting to show. So, Dave, uh, let's look ahead to uh, to Game 2. What, what do you see? What is the number one change the Lightning are going to want to make to have more success? Oh, if I could quote John Cooper, we've been talking about him. He says, it's not as, you know, you asked me about the goals or scoring five on five, which clearly is important, but he has said, listen, for us, it's not how many goals we score, it's how many goals we keep out of the net. And every coach will tell you that, especially in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But in this case, it's true. And quite simply, Jason, I expect them to be better with the puck, to manage it better, to possess it a lot more, to control things themselves, and to keep it out of the hands of the dangerous forwards and and maybe on the back end with with Adam Fox, you know, don't let him uh, dictate things and run the show from the back end because that's what they did, particularly in the second period, right from the drop of the puck, the Rangers ran their show. 
and uh, they need to tighten things up defensively. And that is the number one thing that they were working on yesterday. Structure, structure, structure. I know that's a, a kind of a boring answer, but I, I firmly believe uh, that is priority number one. And I firmly believe that's what we will see uh, from the Lightning tonight. You won't see as many odd man rushes. You won't see a lot of the seam passes that we're getting through. They may attempt it, but I don't think as many will get through. I, I would be very surprised if they were as loose as they were in game one. Awesome, Dave. Uh, we always like to end with what's called uh, rapid fire. Uh, the only rule is you have to answer the question. Okay. So, <laughs> okay, let's go. Uh, all I'm right. Uh, we'll start. Um, what is the biggest benefit of going from a national broadcaster to a regional and with one team? It's fun to care who wins again. As a national broadcaster, you fly in, you do the game, you hope it's a good game, good show, then you fly out the next day. I love doing all those Oilers games, but you don't really care who wins. It's fun caring who wins again, because we all got into this business for the same reason. We were fans. You've done a lot of team sports. You know, you've done the Olympics, everything else. What what non-hockey like football sport was the favorite for you to call? Mm. Lacrosse. National yeah. Lacrosse League. I, Dude, I was given I, I was given an assignment out of the blue from my boss at TSN one day. He said, yeah, we, we were doing a whole bunch of Toronto Rock games and you're calling them. The first game that I saw, I was calling it. And, uh, you know, you got scores of like 17 to 14. The action's great. These guys are incredible athletes. Uh, lacrosse. Dave, I did the NLL for 10 years, man. I absolutely yeah. loved it. Like it was yeah. for a broadcaster. It was so easy at times because the game, there's, there's no, there's no filler. Like it's just like, boom, boom. The transition game is top notch. Yeah. I, I miss doing it. Can NLL. I tell you one quick story of yeah. my very first game? I've done all my prep. So I've, I've, you know, I'm ready for the game. I'm prepared. And, but I've got my notes as you always do. And we're calling the game. The, the game begins. And I quickly glanced down at my notes to get a note. And I looked down on the floor and everybody's doing this. And I didn't know who had the ball. And so I, I learned the lesson right then and there. You can't take your eyes off the floor. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's totally fair. Um, the, uh, what is the worst part of travel as a national broadcaster? Oh, the, the obvious stuff, uh, the, the commercial flights, the delays, the, uh, the flights the next day, you know, I'm blessed to travel with the team. Now it's pretty good. You get in and out and you, you, uh, Park your car right by the plate and you're home. So the yeah, the commercial, the commercial travel and the at all the hotels. Biggest difference between calling CFL games or games in Tampa Bay. <laughs> well, other than the obvious, the weather, uh, that would probably be the number one. Uh listen, I got a, a very soft spot for the Canadian football league. Still watch all the games when I can, uh, living in Florida, but uh uh, I, I did do uh, some play-by-play for two years before I moved in the host chair. And then uh, I, I loved every minute of, of Canadian football league. Now that you're in Tampa Bay, do you wear a suit with shorts? <laughs> uh, no, because, you know, you have to be on camera and I couldn't actually pull it off, but I, I probably would consider it. That's for sure. You don't wear a suit very often and you never put your tie on it until you the last minute they absolutely have to because you just don't stand a chance with the odd the humidity. Who was the hardest guy to rein in on the CFL panel? Ooh, um Matt, Matty Dunnigan. Yeah, but uh they were all unique. Jock Clamy, the late Chris Schultz, uh, and Matt Dunnigan, Milt Stiegel as well. What I 10 plus years I have with all those guys, the stories, the laughs, uh, they're all still very good friends and and may God 
Rest his soul, Chris Schultz. We miss him. Who is a more confident person in their abilities, Milt Stiegel or Nikita Kucherov? <laughs> that is an excellent question. I'm going to go with Milt Stiegel. He's still undefeated. Uh, Kucherov still shows a little bit of frustration outwardly that Milt would never show publicly. <laughs> and um, if you could call one sport that you haven't called, what would it be and why? Baseball. Uh, I think calling baseball is an art. And I'm not so sure I'd be that good at it. I love baseball. I, I'm a baseball guy. I really enjoy it. My son's playing. I loved every minute of that as well. Uh, but uh, I, I have got a lot of admiration for those guys who would just you know, sit back and listen to them and spend three hours plus with them. Uh, I'd like to give it a try because I feel it is really an art form. Who was your 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 broadcaster that you watched growing up that you were like, man, I want to be them. Or did you, were you always someone who wanted to be a broadcaster? Uh, I wanted to be a rock and roll DJ. That's initially was my direction into broadcasting school. That's a, I love music and love the radio, still do. Um, but then, you know, things kind of gravitated towards sports because I was a sports fan. I watched all kinds of guys. Uh, in hockey, it would have been Bob Cole and Dan Kelly. Uh, and, uh, you know, in baseball, Vin Scully, I just talked about the art form. There's no greater artist in that uh, sport than Vin Scully. Uh, and then in football, you know, Pat Summerall, the master of the understatement. You know, currently, I, I, I'm a big fan of a lot of guys like Joe Buck. I, I watch all guys and still to this day, kind of maybe, you know, you're always grooming your own game and, and taking little bits and pieces from everybody. So if you were going to be a DJ, were, were we talking like uh, uh rock DJ, uh, oh, yeah. hard rock? Is that what you would, would you be in a shock jock at all? Or would it be like would no, Dave Randor think... being talking about, uh, you know, offside topics? Yeah, no, I would not. That would not be my, my shtick at all. I just, I like the old school music show. Uh, I grew up in Vancouver listening to Sea Fox okay. uh, and I wanted to be on the Fox. That was my thing. In fact, uh, they had this thing where, where listeners could write in and, and they had the Sunday evening show. And, and I got to do my own show there for like an hour on Sunday night. And I was like 17 years old or something like that. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was uh, it was a huge. What was your on air name? <laughs> uh, then I used just Dave Renner because I was a kid. But uh, here's a little trivia bit for those who care about these things. I did do I was a mobile uh, uh, DJ for like weddings and banquets and stuff like that for a while. And when I was being trained, again, I was a kid. When I was being trained by all these other guys, the guy said, uh, well, you got to change your name. And I said, why do I have to change my name? And I, because, because we all do. It's just a thing that DJs do. And I said, okay. So I ended up with Jeff Thomas. And that's actually what I did. I went out and did these weddings. And, and oh. I was the, uh, the company was called Hits to Go. And I was Jeff Thomas. Jeff Thomas. Oh, I'll be remembering that one. I'll be calling you yeah. Jeff next time I see you. Fantastic. I've never, to I've, this, I've never told that story before. But there you go. Awesome. Uh, well, Dave, uh, enjoy the game and uh, it should be an entertaining uh, series for sure. We appreciate you joining us on the rundown. Uh, this has been fun. I enjoyed the uh, the last little bit in particular, but great hockey discussion. And yeah, Friday night, Madison Square Garden. It should be great. Thanks very much for having me on, boys. Uh, Dave Randorf, a.k.a. Jeff Thomas. Oh, I love it. The, the radio nicknames of the old. It was always two first names. It's so funny. And it was definitely more of a of a rock DJ thing. Uh, than it, and it, even nowadays for DJs, and it is a sports host for sure. So uh, I love it. Uh, everybody has different ones. Uh, Frankie, you ever have a do you ever have a pseudonym, an alias? No, never. No, no? maybe I should have. But I don't know. Well. 
could call you like uh, Tommy Tums right now. You're just crushing the Tums oh. over there. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, it's, uh, I'm having some gastrointestinal distress this morning. I am uh, four, four Tums deep oh. in, my, uh, in my journey, and it is uh, not quite 8 a.m. mountain time yet. Uh, yeah, it's been a weird week that way. It just uh, fellow travels, travelers or work travelers will appreciate this. Uh, you know, I've talked on the show before about my gluten allergy and I somewhere along the way I must have been gluten bombed and it just happened before my flight no. out here to Denver and I, I had a two trip flight to the bathroom. Uh yeah. Not exactly a comfortable place on a plane and definitely not when you're a larger man such as myself. Oh, I always wonder what the, the person sitting in the seat is wondering, like, why is that guy going to the washroom again? Right. Because right away, they're, it's they're not, not. That's not that's not my issue. It's why was he in there for like nine minutes? Yeah, well, that's, exactly. That's really like as I'm walking back to my seat, I'm kind of like this. Like, oh, I hope no one saw me in there. Like, I hope the flight attendant when I got out wasn't like that guy. What a pig. Oh yeah. It's a classic. I, we, man, we could get a flight attendant. That could be a whole story about flight attendant stories of on planes, man. It would be unbelievable what people do. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be unbelievable to get a flight attendant. I would love to write a book for one of the flight attendants from air Canada jets who does the charters for all the teams to hear the stories of what it would be like all year long. I'm sure there's, if you've done it for 10 years, you've probably got a whole book in you. Oh, I would think so. Yeah. Hey, let's get to uh, Tyler, your rem truck on a, on a lovely, uh, positive Friday. Ty, how are you? I, I'm doing great, you guys, and I'm ready for another rip-roaring edition of a buyer sell delivered by our friends over at DoorDash. Ding dong. Ding dong, Liam. That is correct. Uh, 25% off and no delivery fees on your first order when you use the promo code RUNDOWNDD. Let's jump right into it. A little off-season question. You guys spend way too much time talking about the playoffs so far. I'm going to say Barry Trotz will be the first head coach hired this off-season. Buy yourself, Frank. Wow, Tyler, you're really going out on a limb here. The guy that we've talked about gumming up the works for everyone else to hire someone. Uh, yes, I would buy that Barry Trotz is the first coach. I don't think we'll get a surprise anywhere along the way with a team who just falls in love with another candidate. I don't think we're, I just don't think we're at the point in the calendar where you need to jump in and do that. I think there would be, if teams get a no from Barry Trotz, they're really interested. Then they'll probably continue to conduct their under other interviews because to my knowledge and my reporting, a lot of the teams that are in on the Barry Trotz sweepstakes haven't gone down their list just yet. They haven't moved to targets two, three, four, and five. Okay. Jason, I'm going to, I'm going to sell and say Rick Tockett. Ah, see, there you go. I knew I wasn't getting the double buy on that one. Uh, all right. Circling back to the playoffs. Neither one of these series will go seven games buy or sell on both of them ending in six or sooner. Jason. Well, it's pretty easy to want to say that buy right now in the Western Conference for sure. Um, Tampa, New York. Oh, you know what? I'm going to sell. I think I think that series is going to go long. I, I think, uh, you know, I know there's one game, Tampa Bay, that had a long break. They're two-time champs, man. They're not going out easy. So uh, I will say that one goes seven. Yeah, I'm going to sell as well. I think it goes at least six. I mean, we're one Tampa went away from it being guaranteed five. They're winning at least one game. I, I think they win the series. I wouldn't be surprised if they won four straight to win the series, in fact. But uh, I do think the Rangers will... We'll have a 2-2 series at some point. All right. 
So uh, both of you thinking there's a chance this thing goes seven. Uh, speaking of the Rangers, I just think it's remarkable. Like, okay, so you have the kid line that's grabbing all the attention. You also look at their blue line, like Fox, Lingren, Schneider, Keandre Miller, like so much young talent there. I'm going to say the Rangers win a Stanley Cup in the next three seasons. Buy or sell, Frank? You know, I was saying this yesterday. My my dad, obviously living in Philly, big Flyers fan. He's watched the Eastern Conference Final. And I, I said, like, you know, the problem for you, dad, is the, the Rangers are going to be good for like the next seven years. And he said, oh, I have to agree with you after watching, you know, this team in the playoffs. And I was like, their defense core, as you mentioned, Tyler, the old head of the group is Jacob Truba. And he's not exactly old by any standard. The kid line has been great. Zabanajad's in his prime. Kreider's in his prime. Uh, three years, I will buy. All right. And uh, the thing about the Rangers that gives them the uh, the benefit is, you know, the, the, the kid line for them has first line potential. Lots of times your kid line is some young guys, you know, they're playing really well as third line guys, but how many of them are really going to be top stars, right? Um, I look at Lafreniere, he's the number one overall pick. Capo Cac was number two. Uh, you know, was a, was a, what, 21st overall? They're, they're going to have that ability to transition and have deep runs for the next few years. So um, I could, uh, and I love Gerard Galanz as a coach. Um, you know, Daryl Sutter, I thought said it best. He goes, Hey, he deserves that award. Uh, he's kind of guy who got screwed over. I don't think, I don't see the Rangers uh, making the error that the previous two organizations did with Gerard Gallant and he will stick there and they've got Shesterkin coming up. And when you got an elite goalie, you got a shot. So I will buy. To add to that, Tyler, um, the interesting thing about the Rangers is they may have to do it in three years because that's when you're really going to have to start paying everyone. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, I mean, what's Igor Shes- you, you start to run into problems, like all sorts of cat problems. Like they've, they've taken care of Zibanejad, you know, they're, they're in that spot with Kreider, but you know, then they're going to have to pay at some point if he really caps off or pops off Lafreniere and, and, and all the rest of the group, like, you know, even this summer starts to become a little bit more difficult with the math. Um, you know, keto has been great in the playoffs and has, you know, basically matched his production already from the regular season. But are you paying Ryan Strom to keep him? I, I don't, you know, it just, the math starts to get fuzzy. That's all. Yeah. yeah. Well, their advantage is like you can just replace Ryan Strom with, with Lafreniere, right? Lafreniere. And just, you feel like he's ready to take on that role and at, at a much cheaper price for the, for a year or two. Yeah, or if you think Heedle can be a top six centerman, right? Like the with these young kids, you certainly have those options, but definitely a bit of a pinch. I think they're in that mode for the next few years here where you kind of say, forget about the draft picks. We just need to do everything we can to try win win a ring right now. Uh, moving on to our points bet bonus question. Points bet, uh, points bet Canada is live in Ontario. Um, shout out to you guys for going along with Dave Randorf because I texted Frank. You guys were bugging me last week. I made eggs during the interview while I listened, made myself breakfast. My question has nothing to do with hockey. What is your go-to breakfast to make? What is the Jason Greger or Frank Saravalli special, Jay? Well, um, I have a, a little rotation with my son. So uh, we have four breakfasts. Well, he has four breakfasts. He rotates. One day it's eggs, then it's oatmeal, cereal, and pancakes. And, uh, and so he rotates them around. But uh, I would say my favorite for sure is eggs. I will have uh, over easy eggs with, um, I have uh, this carbonate toast that my wife bought. She's very healthy. So I have the carbonate toast with uh, natural peanut butter and a half of an avocado 
It is unreal. Wow. I look for every four days. I can't wait. And the great part is I taught my son. He was making breakfast for himself, his eggs when he was six. Right. He he watched me. And then one day he, he got up before me and I get in the kitchen and he's making his scrambled eggs and he made them. And I was like, this is unreal. So yeah. uh, he I, so we kind of rotate. Is there someday. anything better as a parent? They're like, hey, oh, all you, bud, buddy. Like, it was <laughs> like, you know, like those those proud dad moments that you hear about, like that might be the one I was just like, oh, my, this is what, what is this? What is a salty discharge coming out of here? It was Jerry Seinfeld for a while you're just like it's awesome so uh yeah eggs and uh, every now and then on the uh, once a month we mix in bacon and so eggs bacon and uh, the natural peanut butter but the avocado i'm telling you fellas fresh avocado top shelf wow uh when i was six i was just trying to navigate the old bagel (laughs) slicer so definitely not on the same level um uh, my breakfast, I'm not a big breakfast guy. Uh, in fact, I, most days I don't eat until I try to not eat anything like no calories at all until 12 or one. Okay. Uh, and I try and jam everything in between 12 and seven, you know, playoffs are harder because, oh. um, that doesn't include eat, alcohol, you. right? Frank, Oh, <laughs> uh, between 12 and seven, it does. Yes, it does. Um, uh, I'm not, I'm actually, I don't really drink at home, which is an interesting facet. And another breakfast thing for me, I hate eggs. I don't <laughs> eat eggs. I've never eaten eggs. I don't like eggs at all. It make me barf and it's the texture and the smell. I can't, I cannot get past it. So I don't like it. And so my, if I, if you were going to say to me, Hey, um, you know, what's like an ideal breakfast for you, it'd be some kind of breakfast bowl with like hash browns or potatoes followed by some bacon, maybe some tomatoes, avocado, and like a spicy mayo breakfast sauce, something like that. I would love that. But I also am big in the uh, gluten-free bagel breakfast sandwich. So I do like, as an East Coaster, uh, I would do like uh, pork roll and cheese. And I know you guys don't have pork roll there, but it's sort of, think of it like a really salty, thicker Canadian bacon. All right. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, Frank, uh, like as much as I love my eggs, the other go-to breakfast that I'll have is a cup of Greek yogurt. Then you have a cup of uh, frozen blueberries or raspberries, ideally fresh strawberries in the summer, which is unreal. You put chia and hemp seeds, a big tablespoon of, uh, of those cinnamon, all brand buds. It's the greatest parfait. And then I have a little sweetener that I put on it just so there's no sugar because the Greek yogurt doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't have a flavor to it. Uh, You come to my house and all guys will make you breakfast. Uh, That's like my wife will tell you dinner. Nah, I'm not a big guy except barbecue season. But uh, when it comes to breakfast, breakfast is my like, I love breakfast. I have to eat it. And I like making healthy breakfast. All right. See, this is why you're a skinny prick and I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for another edition of uh, Buy or Sell Delivered by Friends at DoorDash. Ding dong. There you go. Uh, Frankie, it'd be a great weekend. Uh, by the time we talk on Monday, we'll see. We'll have the orders figured out uh, how to, uh, to to compete better. They got they got to produce more. There's no question. I, you, I don't care who your goalie is. If, if you're only giving up uh, three or four scoring chances off the rush every game, you're going to have a pretty easy night. And the orders will have to find their game on the flight home uh, from Denver to Edmonton. Or they'll be potentially staring down a sweep on Monday night. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash.